As most of you would know, last week we began a mini-series that we are calling A Generous Community. And as we seek to be a Jesus-formed community on mission, we believe an essential part of that identity and mission is this characteristic of generosity. We believe that the kind of community Jesus builds is a generous community. That is a deep heart conviction that we have. Our God is a generous God. Everything we have, everything that exists comes from Him. It's a gift from God. We just finished teaching through the Gospel of John. You might remember these words that John said. He said, speaking of Jesus, out of his fullness or out of his abundance, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So this simple yet profound belief in God's abundant generosity is one of the core principles shaping how disciples of Jesus understand and relate to money and our possessions. And our belief in a generous God is actually so intimately connected to our beliefs about stewardship and abundance that it cannot be understood fully apart from the other two. But generosity is the place to begin because everyone in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know something personally, intuitively about the generosity of God. John, the apostle, he writes this in his first epistle, what marvelous love the Father has bestowed, other translations say lavished or poured out on us that we would be called children of God. The message here says, what marvelous love the Father has extended to us. I love this. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. This is who we really are, all because of God's generous grace at work in our lives. Now, for those of you who may not believe that or have not contemplated this truth, Maybe you haven't been listening to the voice of Scripture because the whole narrative of Scripture from beginning to end is a continual testimony to the goodness and generosity of God. Andrew Wilson in his book, Spirit and Sacrament, he says this. He says, the whole creation story is full of God's gifts of love. Life is given to creatures. Earth is given to humanity. Woman is given to man. Children are given to woman. God gives humans dominion over all creation. Mountain ranges and waterfalls, deserts and jungles, leopards, glaciers, sequoias, oranges, peacocks. He gives rain. He gives light. He gives fragrances and flavors, even though as a spiritual being himself has neither a nose nor a tongue. He gives colors. He covers the earth with food-giving plants and life-giving water. He creates orgasm and oxygen. None of these things are needed by God or deserved by his creatures, but he gives them anyway. Creation is a gift of grace and love. You might recall Psalm 107. Psalm 107 is this beautiful psalm where it has these five different stanza of all of these characters who are recalling God's acts of faithful love. And the the psalm begins this way, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. And so then it goes to these five different vignettes of all the ways that God has rescued and redeemed. And then it ends like this. It says, whoever is wise and discerning, let them consider the great love of God. Of God. See, this is what Scripture is telling us from Genesis to Revelation of God's goodness, of God's love, of His generosity. Jesus, 
even in his teachings and his miracles, he reinforces the same generosity of God. Jesus' parables show this picture, the picture of God as an irrepressible giver. You think about, sometimes we don't kind of put them all together, but just listen to them. Once there was a farmer who scattered seeds so liberally that most of it didn't even take root. Not the best farmer. Once there was a king who forgave a debt of 10,000 talents. Once there was a vineyard owner who gave people far more than their work was worth. Once there was a father who gave away half his estate to a rebellious son and then gave him a feast when he came crawling back, having wasted everything. Andrew Wilson remarks, it's hard to think of a parable in which a God figure features and he is not characterized by giving away far more than he should. A generous God. There's also this extravagance, almost wastefulness to Jesus' miracles. Think about who needs 150 gallons of wine for a single wedding? Anyone? I mean, unless you're like Prince William, probably not, right? Who needs 12 baskets of leftovers after already feeding 5,000 people? Or seven baskets after feeding 4,000? But even think just of the way that Jesus met people. He touched people. He healed people. Even at the resurrection of, or excuse me, the death of Jesus is accompanied by the resurrection of others. It's this really weird passage. Why? Because all of this is pointing and reiterating again and again God's abundant generosity and goodness to humanity. But of course, all of this pales in comparison with God's gift of himself through Jesus Christ. John writes, God gave his one-of-a-kind son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Or Paul writes, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul the Apostle, in response to God's generosity through the gospel, says this, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. It is beyond comprehension, beyond all measure. So God's very way of being can be summarized as generous. Our God is a generous God, therefore we believe that the kind of community Jesus forms is a generous community. And this is what Jesus highlights all throughout this great sermon, the goodness and generosity of God, the God who causes rain to fall on both the deserving and the undeserving, the wicked and the righteous. God who abundantly provides for the lilies of the field, just see how they're dressed, the birds of the air that need not store in barns or refrigerators. And Jesus asks, how much more for you, his beloved children. Now, Jesus' point isn't just to tell us that God will provide, that God will provide for the gas bill, school tuition, the mortgage or rent, but Jesus is actually going beyond all that. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to form us and shape us us into the image of God. That's the purpose of this sermon. And so to do that, Jesus wants to set our gaze on a higher priority, which is each of us growing in our own character to reflect God's generosity and goodness out into the world around us. Remember, I've always thought this so fascinating. When Jesus is talking about God's generosity, you know, uh, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and he causes us to be like God. And he doesn't say, do this so that other people know. He says, do this so that you may be like your Father in heaven. It's about us bearing the image. 
It's about us being in step and in line with who God has actually created us to be. That's first and foremost what it's about. Now, Jesus doesn't ignore the fact that we have worries, cares, and real responsibilities. The question, how do we discern where to give to invest our time, money, and resources? Sometimes we wonder, is it my own nuclear family? Is it the church community? Is it you know, the world beyond those who do not know God and are far from God? I think the scripture would answer, yes. Yes, it is, it's all of that. And all of a sudden, oh my gosh, how is one person supposed to do that? See, let's just step back a second. This is what God wants to do. God wants to make us like himself, good and generous. He wants to make this our way of being, in which case, we will be led by the Spirit of God to do the good and generous thing at the right time and in the right place because that's the kind of people we have become by God's grace and His Spirit working in us and us cooperating with that work. We are transformed into God's good and generous people. Do you guys get that? See, I think sometimes as Christians, it's like, okay, what are the boxes that I have to check? What do I have to do? Paul the apostle is constantly trying to say to the church, no, 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 that's the old way of operating. But the new creation is radically different. It blows all categories out of the water. God has done a new thing. He's made a new creation and he has filled us with the Spirit of God and now we, like the Spirit, we go wherever the wind blows and as good and generous people, we don't just tick boxes. No, we are led by the Spirit of God to do goodness, to do righteousness, to do justice in the world as God's agents of the new creation. This is what this sermon is meant to do. This is what the epistles are inviting us into, into the life of the new creation. As we do that, we become a generous people, a generous community because we have assimilated the generosity of God. Now, though anyone can listen and learn from this sermon, I believe that, and anyone can respond to Jesus' offer of the good life, its primary audience and focus is the disciple of Jesus. It describes the life that necessarily results from genuine salvation. It describes what God is doing in us and what God wants to do through us, what he is making us into by his spirit and grace upon us. Now in this section, you might have noticed Jesus sets before us two treasures, two eyes, two masters, and two concerns. Two treasures, God or riches. Two eyes, one unhealthy and one healthy. Two masters, and finally, two concerns. The concerns of this life or the concern of the kingdom of the heavens. This is what Jesus presents to us, and I believe the question that Jesus is after is this, what kind of people are we? Who do you want to be? What kind of person are you becoming? Because what your passion is, where you invest your time, your emotion, your resources, that is your ultimate. It is your God and you are being shaped in its image and its likeness. So, Jesus first wants to teach us what we should not do, and then we'll talk about how we work through that, and then he wants to show us what we should do. So that's basically gonna be the format of our teaching this morning. So, what we should not do. In each of these many teachings, Jesus seems to be making one great point, right? With the Two treasures, two eyes, two masters, two concerns. What is it all pointing to? It's pointing to this, that our allegiance and loyalty, what we live for or what our goal or aim in life is, shapes who we are and who we become. Because we are disciples of Jesus, 
recipients of his love and salvation, citizens of the kingdom of God, Jesus says to his people, we should not covet. We should not hoard or store up treasures where moth, rust, and thieves can ruin it. Because where you invest your time, money, and emotions, that's who you really are. Do you want to corrode and fade away? Jesus says, if you have a stingy or unhealthy eye, your whole life will be filled with darkness. This is weird, right? A stingy eye. So in the Greek, Jesus is actually using a play on words here. The word healthy is also a word that was used for generosity, while the word diseased or unhealthy is also a word that's used for stinginess or greed. And so Jesus is using this play on words to get his point across. What he's saying is this, greed fills your life with darkness, and so you can't actually see or understand the meaning or purpose of life. That's what greed will do for anyone who indulges in it. However, a healthy eye is full of light. Jesus is saying, just like the eye, a healthy, rightly ordered, properly working life is filled with generosity and can clearly see the meaning and purpose of life. Or here's another one, you cannot serve two masters. Do not let money be your master. Serving it is diametrically opposed to serving God and your whole, excuse me, and your human wholeness as one who bears the image of God. There are a few times in Scripture, specifically in the Psalms, but also in the prophets, where the writer of Scripture is pointing out this I guess it's just an observation, that the people who worship these dumb and deaf idols become like the dumb and deaf idols. And it is this operating principle. N.T. Wright writes about this. Listen to this. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat others as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. You can see this also with those who worship sex, right? They become, humans become objects of desire. We sexualize human beings. We talk of people as partners. We describe ourselves by what we do or don't do, right? All of these are forms of idolatry. Right says, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. What you worship, what you center your life around shapes who you are and who or what you become. This is an operating principle of life. And so Jesus is saying to his people, make a good investment. Make a good investment that can't be tainted. It's interesting that Jesus just appeals to like the best of human intentions, right? Like is there anybody in the room this morning who's like, I really want to make a bad investment. I want to throw my money away, right? I love to buy broken things. Like nobody thinks this way or operates this way. Now, most people throughout history, though, have thought that fullness of life, security, flourishing, comes through gathering as much as you can. And in the West, we tend to measure success by how rich you are, um, by the possessions that you have. But it really doesn't matter whether you're the wealthiest or if you're the poorest. 
humans just have this tendency to collect and to hoard things. Um, has anybody seen members of the homeless community that will carry around wagons, uh, grocery carts filled with broken things? They have no value, and yet they carry them around. They are their possessions. I don't know if you've ever tried to help somebody get that stuff out of their life, but it's like you are killing a, a member of their family. I mean, it's just fascinating. It doesn't matter if we're the richest or the poorest. Some of you have garages that you can't even park in because of all the things that you've collected. You have storage units you haven't visited in years. Why do we do this? What do we think is going to happen to this? It seems that part of being human is this desire that we want to see a good return for our labor, for our investments, and we see the accumulating of things, whether in excess or just the quality things of life, as a way of bringing security, comfort, and ease to our lives. Jesus points out, however, no matter how hard you work, how well you invest, all things in this world are subject to decay to some degree. And we all know this. We've all had this experience, right? We purchase something new only for it to fade or corrode over time. I am one of those, like, um, I have like a bit of, you know, what they call OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, where like if I find something that I like, I will buy multiples of these things because I fixate. Yeah, I know, I'm letting you in, right? Here we go, we're close now. Uh, I will fixate on something and, you know, I, I want to have three backups for when this one corrodes. No joke, you can ask Grace. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was trying on a shirt and she's like, yep, great, looks like all the other ones. And I'm like, yep, it's my uniform, right? This is what I do. So, but, right, I'm operating according to this principle. I know this one that I really like is going to wear out, so I've got three backup in the wings, just waiting for when it does. Things we greatly value and protect can be stolen from us. All earthly hoarding and investments are fleeting at best. We all know that. But they're also life-shattering idols at worst. They bring a sense of comfort, but there's really no security. And yet we still do it. Stanley Hauerwas, in his book, Christian Existence Today, he says this, there is a deep puzzle about the American people. For in spite of being the best off people in the world, their almost frantic pursuit of abundance seems to mask a deep despair and loss of purpose. I think about, remember when Jesus tells that parable where he says, you know, what if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Like, this is the danger, is that we can seek abundance and security as a way to mask a deep despair and loss of purpose. What Jesus wants to do is keep our fingers on the pulse of our soul. Stay attuned with who you are, who you have been created and redeemed to be. Stay in touch with the meaning and purpose of life. Don't get distracted, bogged down, weighed down with the uncertainty of riches. But make a good investment is what Jesus says and wants for his people. Listen to what he says in this parable from Luke 12. I don't know if you guys have studied the Sermon on the Mount um, very much. We're actually going to do that later this summer. Um, but I think that the uh, parables are actually this incredible window for understanding Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually a really fun exercise to do to kind of see how these are these kind of word pictures that Jesus paints in the parables of his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Anyway, that one's for free. Um, 
Jesus says this, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Listen to this, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And so he thought to himself, what shall I do? I don't have any place to store all my crops. So he said, this is what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my house. I'm going to build a bigger one. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, retire, visit the state parks, do whatever you want, check out. Don't be there for your grandkids or anybody else that needs you because you've invested and done all this stuff, and so now you're a free agent. Do whatever you like. Wait, it doesn't say that. Hold on. But that's the idea. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. You've worked hard. You deserve it. But God says to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And Jesus comments, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, I joke, right? Because we've all heard that story like, well, you know, we got an RV and we're seeing the parks now because we're retired and we don't have any more responsibilities. Like, really? You don't have any responsibilities? Like, to your children, to your grandchildren, to your church community, to the mission of God? But we hear about Christian people doing this kind of stuff all the time. They check out. Member of no community. Now, can you visit the parks? Can you, rent a, can you buy an RV and do all that stuff? Yeah, knock yourself out, sure. But are you on... God's mission? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God? Because last I checked, you said you were a Jesus person. You're following the way of Jesus. So we have to bring these values and priorities of our culture in check through the way of Jesus. So what is Jesus saying? Life, flourishing, fullness does not consist in abundance or possessions. See, the rich man in this parable is not called a fool because he's rich. He's actually not even called a fool because he gathered. He's a fool because he thought by gathering he was secure. He thought by gathering he could take life easy, check out, eat, drink, and party, and never considered the absolute necessity of being rich toward God. Do we think about that? What does it mean to be rich toward God? What does it mean to be rich in righteousness or in right doing? Now, don't miss what I'm saying. Jesus is not down on the rich. It doesn't matter how rich we are, how much we have, we are all prone to secure ourselves with possessions, with gathering things, rather than saving and spending for the kingdom of God. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. Is the Bible, and specifically Jesus, opposed to rich things? to money, to pleasure, to enjoying life, to vacation, saving accounts, you know, for school, for medical expenses, for retirement? What's the short answer, people? No, of course not. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the creator of all things. All beauty, joy, and pleasure comes from him. We see, all that we see and enjoy was made by him for his glory, for our joy. The Bible also teaches about financial responsibility, good, faithful, and just stewardship of the resources that God has given us. What Scripture speaks against, what the way of Jesus is opposed to, is selfishness. Self-preservation, self-seeking, building and securing our kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. So this begs the question, do you use, do I use what God has given me, what God has given you, our stewardship of time, money, and resource to build God's kingdom or to build our own? Do I see the things that God has given me as a way to make myself or my life more pleasurable, more enjoyable, more secure, more comfortable? Or do I see it as a way to do God's work, a resource, a tool that God has given me to partner with him in his kingdom work? See, Jesus wants to change our way of thinking. He wants to change our value system around the thinking and values of his kingdom. 
so we might bear the image that we might join God in his kingdom work. Sadly, we often fail to live out God's way, and we often live very similarly to, if not exactly the same as the world around us. Michael Goheen in his book, Introducing Christian Mission Today, says this, there is a low spiritual state of the church. There's a lukewarm love for Christ. There's a sickly worldliness and a lack of vital prayer. The reason? Self-satisfaction that comes from comfort. What do we need God for? We're comfortable, we're fine. We have everything we need. There's a compromise with capitalism and accommodation to the consumeristic spirit of our age. The problem is, is this is antithetical to the way of Jesus and to the kingdom of God. So what should we do? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is Jesus redirecting his people in his way. So instead of using money for self, for ease and comfort in his life, use, save, store money for investing in God's kingdom, trusting that your father in heaven who is such a great father and caretaker will abundantly care for you. Well, what does that look like? Well, in Luke 16, Jesus tells a story of a dishonest manager. How many of you are familiar with this story, the parable from Luke 16? Isn't it one of the weirdest parables ever? You're like, Jesus, did you lose your mind? Like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, he commends the unjust steward. You're like, that can't be right. I'm reading this wrong. So let's read it together, and then, you know, I'll make a few comments on it. So uh, just kind of leading up to it. So apparently there was a dishonest manager who's doing all sorts of shady things. And so his master finds out about it. And he tells him, like, listen, you're fired. Close all your accounts. So what the manager does is he goes to all these accounts and he says, hey, how much do you owe my master? And they're like, oh, you know, so-and-so amount. He's like, great, cut that in half. And then he goes and he basically cuts deals with everyone, you know, and then turns in the books. So when the master found out what the manager did, this is what he says. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And Jesus adds this application. This is so fascinating. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I want you to think about that principle for a second. The people of this world are more shrewd in their dealings than people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Jesus is looking at the dealings of people of this world like, look what they're doing. They are securing for the next stage of life. They're making, cutting deals. They're you know, doing all this kind of stuff just to secure a way of life. Why aren't God's people living like that? If we know the kingdom of heaven is advancing, if we know that Jesus is seated on the throne, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of Christ and of our God, why aren't we using all of the resources that, that God has given us to do his kingdom work, to build his kingdom? Jesus is scratching his head at this. Jesus commends this man's shrewdness. Why? Because he used his position and resources to secure himself for the next stage of his life. 
This is exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what you should be seeking because an investment there cannot be tainted, cannot be touched, cannot be taken from you. You will receive an abundant reward. Remember that story when Jesus is talking about what we sacrifice for him. And Peter's like, well, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, yes. And all that do will receive a hundredfold in the life to come. A hundredfold in the life to come. Well, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? I believe it means that our wealth, abilities, our influence, all our resources should be used to do God's kingdom work. That wherever God has called you, whatever he has given you, it's not for you. It's for his glory. It's for others. We, actually, I just had this amazing conversation with my 12-year-old son yesterday. We'll be 12 on Tuesday. But just this principle that I had to learn as a young man, that I thought, like even like in my marriage, right? I thought my wife was for me. And I became very jealous. I mean, this is a real thing, right? Like when my wife is happy with other people and spending time with other people, even as a parent, if you've ever gone through this, well, all of a sudden, the roles change, and you're no longer the object of attention or affection, but your children are. It's a really good thing, but when you're a selfish sicko, it's a really bad thing. Oh, okay, I'm alone in this? Right? We do this. We think that all that's been given for, to us is for us. This is not true. Not only is this not true, it's a miserable way to live for anybody that has tried it. Absolutely miserable. And so Jesus is reorienting us around the good way of life, the flourishing way, where life works under God's rule, in God's image after God's values. So what is God's kingdom work then? It's simply living out the character and principles of his kingdom. So righteousness, right? Now, oftentimes I think we think of righteousness as what we receive from Jesus, and yes, this is true. We have received the righteousness of God by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. But when the scripture speaks about doing righteousness, practicing righteousness, that actually means that we do what is right. It means that we live in right relationships with the people around us. It means that we practice kindness and generosity, that we practice faithfulness and goodness, that we practice gentleness. That's what seeking God's kingdom would look like, living rightly with the people around us. But it's not just that, it's also justice. And in scripture, righteousness and justice often go together. This is the way my professor, Dr. Gary Brashears, puts it. This is very convicting, even every time I read it. He says, mercy or justice is inconveniencing yourself for the sake of the worthless person. And what he means by that is the person that just brings no value into your life. Like, they can't reciprocate. Like, you scratch their back, sorry, they're not going to scratch yours. Like, that's just the way it is. So who would be the worthless person? Uh, it would be the widow. Someone who doesn't have resources, doesn't have anything to give. It's the single mom who doesn't have time, emotions, energy to give, right? It's the fatherless foster, orphan, it's the poor, it's the foreigner. And then Gary says this, which is so convicting. He says, injustice is keeping my stuff for my own comfort. I imagine that searches every single one of us in this room. 
Injustice, according to the Bible, is when I keep my stuff for me. No, God says, actually, I have a right, and the people around you have a claim to everything I've given you. I have given you everything that I've given you so that you might do my work with me. Not so that you could love yourself. Not so that you could comfort or secure yourself. To seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness then is to look at the world around us and wherever we see the world out of relationship with God, the brokenness of sin, the injustice of greed and selfishness to diffuse the gospel in our deeds and our words, using our time and money and resources to do God's work. That's what it is. Now, let me just say this. Practically speaking, you can't do everything. So I would hate for us to walk out of here like a deer in headlights. It's like just completely overwhelmed. Or like to walk out and think, oh, I'm such a bad person. That's not how Jesus approaches his disciples in the sermon. That's not how I'm trying to approach this. I'm saying, look, we all have, you know, we're all a mixed bag of desires. What Jesus wants to do, he wants to reorient those desires into his way of being. And he wants us to experience joy in him as we do that. So you can't do everything. What is one thing you could do? What is one comfort you could sacrifice for the advancement of the kingdom of God? As Jesus' people, he's calling us to make the manifestation, the putting on display of the kingdom of God, our one aim and goal, the central focus of our lives. Now, I just want to finish up by asking this question, well, why should we do this? Why should we do this? Well, there's a few reasons. Number one, this is how God created you to live. Number two, this is how life works best. This is the flourishing way of Jesus, the most whole, perfect, good human being, the happiest human being who ever lived. And lastly, this reflects the character of God out into the world around us. Now, in the beginning, I already talked about just all of the goodness of God seen in creation, right? There's this interesting thing, though, that happens where God has created human beings in his image, and he wants them to rule over the earth in his place. But what God is really saying is, I want you to rule like I rule. And they can look around just at all God's love and generosity and goodness that he has just infused in creation and think, okay, this is what we're called to do. We're, uncalled, we're called to infuse God's goodness, love, and generosity into all that we do. Take the earth's natural resources and cultivate them in such a way that there's plenty for everyone. And then as we go throughout the biblical narrative, you'll see that God actually indicts kingdoms and peoples and nations for not living like him, not ruling in righteousness and justice, the way that he rules in righteousness and justice. And there's this passage in Jeremiah that, gosh, it just nailed me a few years ago. Listen to what God says to this one king. He says, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? So remember, cedar was what the kings would build their marvelous palaces out of. Is this what makes you a king? You can build a big house? Is that what makes you a king? He said, did your father, did not your father have food and drink? He had what he needed. Yet he did what was right and just, so everything went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, so all went well. Listen to this. Is that not what it means to know me? Church, I want us to think about that for a second. What do you think it means to know God? What do we think that means? Oh, I know God. Really? What does that mean? Because according to this passage, it means that we do righteousness, that we practice justice, that we are people that look for opportunities to show mercy. That's what it means to know God. And the church is radically upside down when it comes to what we think it means to know God. 
Oh, you say this prayer, you do this, you know, and you come to church and you, you serve your church, and that's what it means to know God. No, it's not. No, the Bible says that's not what it means to know God. It means to be infused with God's righteousness, to live the way God lives, to join God in his kingdom work. That's what it means to know God, to rule like he rules. So that's one reason we should do this, because this is what God has created us for. This is what it means to know God. But Jesus also says, do this because God seeks your well-being. See, a generous God should naturally equal a generous people. Remember the story of the uh, unforgiving servant? The king forgives him like this like, huge debt. And the man's like, oh my gosh, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then he walks out and he finds some dude that owes him a hundred bucks and then he beats him to a bloody pulp and throws him in prison and says, you know, you're not getting out until you pay me. The man has no idea. It has not made it into his brain what has actually happened. You have been showed such incredible mercy and it has yet to translate into your life to show mercy to others. See, the mercy of God should make us merciful. The goodness of God should make us good. The righteousness of God should make us righteous. The generosity of God should make us generous. That's the operating principle that Jesus is giving us here. Now, years ago, I spoke with a man who did not have a good paying job. He had a large family, part of our church for uh, 15 years. And him and I had many, many conversations about their life and just the difficulties of life and the lack of you know, money that they had. And one time, again, he was sharing just all of his anxiety about this with me. And he had done this, as I said, many times before. And being at a loss of words after so many conversations, I kind of blurted out, well, you know, God's brought you this far. I'm, I'm certain he's not going to give up on you now. Now I admit, not the most pastorally sensitive thing I could have said in that moment. And we have a long history together. But I'll tell you, something went off in his head. And it was like all of a sudden, he did this kind of looking back at life and surveying God had been faithful here, and faithful here, and faithful here, and faithful here, and brought him to this moment. Why would he doubt the faithfulness of God now? Why? And see, this is the principle that Jesus is trying to give us here. For all the amount that we worry, fret, and stress about life, yet here you are. Here you are. God has been so faithful and he will continue to be faithful. I imagine Jesus saying this, will you please trust your father to do what fathers do best? To care for you, to love for you, to provide for you, and will you just do the one thing he keeps on asking you to do? Will you just seek his kingdom and let him take care of everything else? He promises he will do that. Lastly, why should we do this? Because uh, this is the very reason we're sitting here in the first place. We should do this because of what God has done for us through the gospel, right? Jesus is the eternal God who dwelt in glory and riches unimaginable. But as Philippians chapter 2 tells us, Jesus did not hold on to any of this for himself. He did not use this for his own gain or comfort, but he used his position and resources in order to rescue and redeem you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So if this is what Jesus our King and Master did for us, how can we hold back anything or any part of our life from him? This goes back to what I was saying earlier. See, the gospel, it just blows all categories. It 
blows all the boundary lines. As Christians, sometimes we can think that, oh, you know, I tithe, I give, I serve. I do these things, and so that's all I'm required to do, and I'm good with God, and He's good with me. I think that this is actually a way that we limit God's authority over our lives. In a sense, it can be this, right? We say to God, this far, but no further. I've given mine. I've served in this way, so God cannot require anything more of me. But when we look at the cross, we can't say that. Jesus did not give a portion of his body for us. He did not give a drop of his blood. He gave his whole self unreservedly to rescue and redeem us. The gospel says, how can we withhold anything from him? And so we say, God, my life is yours to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Our generous God transforms us to be generous people who reflect his character and goodness. To live our lives for our own comfort, to live according to the goals and values of the world is not just spiritual immaturity, it is a denial of the very gospel that has saved us. And it is to mar the image of God that he has stamped upon your life. That's what it is. Now, as we close, if I could just summarize it like this. Church, Jesus is really asking if we would live simply. Will you simplify your life in order to use the excess, the resources that you have to do his work? I heard a story recently about a woman who was a doctor, but believed that God was calling her to do her work as a doctor, but to live like a nurse. I thought, wow, that's beautiful. Saying, I want you to actually limit your comfort, your security, your ease, and I want you to use everything else to serve others around you. I think that is a beautiful principle that puts exactly what we're saying into practice. How can we live simply in order that we might set our time, money, and energy and focus on God's kingdom and his righteousness? Again, you can't do everything. And God isn't calling you to do everything, but what is the one thing you can do? What comfort can you sacrifice for the kingdom's advancement? How could you live more simply in order to reflect God's generosity to the world around you? That is our invitation from Jesus. And as we do that, we step into this formation of God's image in our lives. We live out his fullness and his good way of life. And we also put the goodness of God on display through our lives.